Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on WORTFM.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. Madison. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. And today I am joined by my like dear friend, like dope mama, Angela Russell, who is a VP of diversity and inclusion at True Stage in Madison and the host of the podcast Black Oxygen. She's also a mother of two, was born, you know, in Peoria, Illinois in the 1900s. <laughs> She's the baddest. She's the baddest and she's the best. And I'm so glad we get to have this conversation with you on WORT. How are you doing today, Angela? I'm doing okay. Ali, it's so good to see you. And thanks for having me on your show. I I want to talk to you a little bit about what it means to, to be working in diversity and inclusion in in this community at a time like this. Yeah. I mean, well... Can I just start off and be cheesy for just a second? We love cheese. This is what's <laughs> um, It's honestly kind of a, a huge honor and humbling to be working in the practice of diversity, equity, and inclusion in general. To have the opportunity to, to stand on the shoulders of so many of my ancestors who worked, you know, over centuries to make, to make this place a great place, meaning the United States, a great place for everyone to live and thrive. And we're not there yet. But to be a part of that body of work is just really humbling. And um, to, to do this work in such a time as this, um, you know, it's, it's part of it. And if not who, if not me, then who? And it, take, and it takes all of us, but it's a real, it's humbling and, and an honor. And, you know, you kind of, there was this, um, person who, God, I'm blanking on his name, who talked about doing DEI in these types of times. And it's like, you've been practicing and preparing to run a race and now you're running the race. So if you're relying on muscle memory, you're still learning and still kind of observing the environment, but it doesn't mean that you're done. It means that we can kind of just kind of keep going. DEI is being leveraged as a, a tool of divisiveness. And there's been kind of this recent, uh, you know, conflict brewing in our capital around funding, um, you know, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. If the University of Wisconsin-Madison continues to engage in DEI, um, DEI has kind of been characterized on the right, similarly to critical race theory within academia and is, is a buzzword that, that intimidates people. For folks who don't really know what diversity and equity and inclusion are, but think that it might be kind of scary, mm-hmm. um, what's the first chapter of, of your book? For for those who don't mm-hmm. know, what it, what is the what is the first thing folks should know about DEI before before they let somebody use it to intimidate them politically? Yeah, um, I appreciate this question a lot, and this intimidation isn't just happening in Wisconsin; it's happening across the country and. 
it's a question that we get a lot. And I would just start with how we started at True Stage is really level setting on two things. One is a definition of DEI and understanding the why. And I'll go ahead and start with the why first, our why. Our whole mission and vision is to create a brighter financial future for as many people, for everyone, and making sure that that brighter financial future is accessible to everyone. We cannot do that unless we have a workforce that reflects both the demographics and psychographics of our changing consumer base. Our country is changing, changing rapidly. And in order for us to be a helpful company, we have to understand what people need. And that means under making sure that we have a workforce that reflects that changing consumer base. So understanding that why, getting connected to your North Star, then really level setting on what do we mean by diversity, equity, and inclusion? And here at True Stage, we have spent years, like when I tell you years, years on defining what is diversity, what is equity, and what is an in, what is inclusion. So diversity is literally um, having difference, right? Differences in populations. Uh, and I talk about how there are visible forms of diversity and invisible forms of diversity. So those visible forms of diversity include um, oftentimes race, sometimes gender, um, a lot of times height. Your listeners don't really know that I am very short, <laughs> incredibly short. My son tells me that on a regular basis. And there are a whole host of invisible forms of diversity. So sexual orientation is often an invisible form of diversity. Um, if you're a caregiver, um, what else, you know, mental health, health abilities, educational status, uh, political affiliation, religious affiliation. If you're not affiliated with religion, all of those encompass diversity. So when we think about diversity, we have to have a broad understanding of what it means. So I talk about that. Then we talk about equity. What is equity? And sorry if I'm going on a nerdy nerd diatribe right now. But, um, and I use a mental model that I'm going to speak to right now is a visual that was developed by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. So in this visual um, talks about the difference between equity and equality. But I, before I kind of go into that, most of my career, before I started True Stage, all of my career has been in some shape or form related to um, the government, whether it was state government, local government, or the university. And in government, we tried, we talked about treating everyone the same, right? And that's equality. With equity, you're giving folks what they need in order to be a full participant in whatever's happening. So this mental model that I have in my head is of, let's see, three people riding a bike. You've got, nope, four, four people. You've got that mental model in your head right now, Ali? So four people riding. Four people are riding this bike. Yes. We're talking about equity and diversity and really, and really building out kind of how you think about equity as, yeah. as different than equality. So four people want to go on this bike ride. And to um, you give every person of those four people the same bike. So the person who is a little shorter than me, which is would be very short, is given the same um, bike as a person who is maybe 5'5". Five, five. The person who is 6'4 is given the same bike as a person that's 5'5". Five, five. And the person that doesn't have the ability to use their legs is also given the same bike. And we're like, yep, we did it. 
everyone got the same thing. It's equal. But what we focus in on that model is equality of input as opposed to equality of outcome. Equality of outcome is ensuring that everyone can go on this ride together. So in an equity model that ensures equality of outcome, we give folks what they need in order to participate in the ride. So the person that's shorter than me gets a smaller frame of a bike. The person who is 5'5 five five already had the right bike to begin with. And then the person who's taller gets a bigger frame. And the person that could only use, couldn't only use their legs gets a like a tricycle that can be used with their arms. So everyone got what they need in order to participate in that ride together. Does that make sense in terms of the difference between equity and equality? You know, I think this is such a, a cool thing to hear you describe this with such detail because I'm so used to kind of relying on images um, mm-hmm. to kind of make this point. And so thank you for respecting that WORT, we are an audio medium. Um, and, and, and I feel like you really drew that picture, right? You can't talk about diversity and just go, hey, I'm glad there are a bunch of people in this room who are really different with, from one another if you're not willing to accommodate those differences, if you're not willing um, to, to, to really do the work to make sure all of those people's needs um, you know, are met within, yeah. within the context of the space. And so, absolutely, oh, go ahead. I was gonna add, talk about inclusion. Yes, let's get into inclusion. To that, to that point that you were t- talking about people's getting their needs met, sometimes we think about inclusion is getting all the diverse people in the room, diverse in air quotes, people in the room, and then acting, asking them to act like the cultural norm. So um, inclusion is not acting, pe- acting for people who are different to react and behave like the cultural norm. It's understanding that those differences are valued and appreciated and asking what can we do to garner a space where those differences can thrive, right? So, so often I, I, in spaces of DEI, Folks are like, okay, we got to get diversity. We've got to get diversity. And that's true. Diversity is necessary. But what are you doing to like really unpack what are those cultural and social norms of your of the majority of your organization that unintentionally, and I emphasis on unintentionally, unintentionally exclude people who are different. And it's generally, it's not in the code of conduct stuff that excludes people most often. It's those unwritten rules of success. Mm. I want to bring in a little context, and I'm doing that because, per usual, our incredible producer, Jade, who we've got a shout out, um, you know, has sent me over (laughs) something that I could I could use to to further this conversation and inform this conversation to a greater extent. Over the weekend, the University of Wisconsin's Board of Region narrowly rejected a deal with the state legislature that would release funding to the universities in exchange for eliminating DEI staff with the UW system. Mm. What is it like for you, Angela, when when you're you're seeing this attack on the work that you're so deeply committed to and so very passionate about? Yeah, it's um, what is it like for me is that I have to go back in history and realize this isn't the first time that the 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 body of work uh, around DEI, around justice, around civil rights. It, it's not the first time that it's been kind of challenged and it's not the last time, right? This is part of the process. And again, I think if I think about the body of work that True Stage does across the nation, um, it just really puts a pin on if we cannot um, understand the changing 
needs of our consumer base, we're not going to be effective of who we are. And um, it just con continues to highlight for me that we have to and we will continue to do this work of DEI at True Stage, regardless of kind of some of the, the rhetoric that's happening. Yeah, I think one of the attitudes in activist movements is if there's no if you're not making anybody angry, you're not doing it right. Yeah. Um, does does DEI feel a little bit like that to you? If we're not <laughs> if we're not rustling feathers, if we're not challenging the status quo, if we're not making people uncomfortable, we're not really doing it. I'm chuckling because um, when I started uh, eight years ago here at True Stage, uh, more than eight years ago now, I'm like, wow, we got a lot of people who are not really digging this DEI work at all. And someone, uh, a colleague of mine, who is still a colleague of mine said, if we're not, if you're not, um, if you're not pushing hard enough, wait, if you don't get any ruffles or any ripples or anything, put, if you don't get any pushback, it means you're not pushing hard enough. And um, seems like we've been pushing hard enough for a while. Because <laughs> the, the pushback is consistent. And honestly, it's, it's so fear-based. So for me to be effective as a DEI practitioner and leader, I have to understand, maybe not fully understand, but be empathetic around the fear that exists for, for around diversity. Because there's just an, sometimes this visceral reaction, which is based in fear. I wonder, though, for you personally, do you ever think about how this can impact your own life. Like, it's not just that this is something you believe in or participate in. In a lot of ways, you're one of the faces of, of DEI in this community. Um, and to be associated with something that people misunderstand frequently, um, or to be, to be associated with something that people have real politicized views about, can be dangerous. It can be scary. It can make people hostile towards you, dismissive towards you. Um, how do you deal with the with a part of it that is negative attention around this area becomes specific to who you are and your participation and leadership within the work? Yeah, I, I appreciate this question so much because my mom was very fear fearful of me going into this work for that very reason. Um, for me, it's just, it's part of it. While it can seem deeply personal at times, it's not. Um, it's it's just, it's not. <laughs> and again, if I look at people who've been doing this work decades and centuries before me, um, it feels like a great honor to be doing this work. It Does it get frustrating at times? Absolutely. Um, does it get tiring, exhausting, maddening? Absolutely. All those things are very, very true. Um, but yeah, it's it's literally a part of it. You know, I've had those jobs before, and I feel like folks who are listening, thank you for, for tuning in to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. Happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate. It's Tuesday, so this is a public affair. And we're talking with Angela Russell. Um, and I think, you know, it, it can be really personal in a different way to, to have a job um, that allows for you to, to reconcile a long-term history with oppression. And at the same time, I imagine you were once like a six-year-old kid who was like, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be the mayor or whatever it was. How do you find yourself going from kind of 
the roles you had in, in public service um, and maybe the dreams you had as a young person to the vice president of diversity, equity and inclusion for true stage um, as an adult. Like how, you know, if there are folks who are listening out there and they don't really know yet, but they want to be you when they grow up, yeah. how do they get there? I, I'll talk about that in just a second. I want to go back to your previous question about reconciling that this job can be hard. Um, you know what's harder for me isn't the, that um, you know that that I have naysayers. That's part of it. What's harder for me is being a leader in this space, knowing that I still can't protect my children from racism and the racism racism that I that they have experienced. That part is heartbreaking, um, and that's that's when you will see me be more emotional or vulnerable and be like, I'm literally working to change this system, and yet I cannot protect my own children from experiencing really horrible things as a result of race. That's hard. Um, let me go back to your other question. So in terms of a, a career, um, yeah. So my career has been interesting. Um, I started in, in high school. I was very pre-med. I did all like the extracurricular activities. I specifically, uh, in terms of extracurricular activities, in terms of being a science nerd, wanting to be pre-med, or yeah, pre-med. And I specifically wanted to be a pediatric oncologist. Um, very, very specific. I was on the, uh, in the band and I was on the speech team and the speeches that I gave on speech team were about kids with cancer. Very, very intensely focused in on that. Went to college, um, went to Beloit College, have a degree in uh, an undergrad degree in biochemistry and a um, minor in what was it? Healthcare studies. And in between my sophomore and junior year, and I was still pre-med at this time, but I had an internship at the state health department in 1997, the summer of 1997. And that internship was all looking at the disparity between black and white women related to breast cancer mortality. And that's when it started. I started getting really, really interested in health disparities um, and got really interested in, you know, policy. And so I ended up going to grad school and I have my master's degree in population health, uh, did a variety of research when I was in grad school and also worked at this place that no longer exists at the medical school called the Center for the Study of Cultural Diversity in Healthcare. So again, in grad school, 99 through 2001, really kind of emphasizing how does culture in, impact, culture and race explicitly impact health outcomes over time. So I've just kind of, I've loved this stuff for a long time. I eventually became an epidemiologist with the state health department, um, doing hep C epidemiology, and then looking at hep C HIV co-infection among the incarcerated population, which was again, interesting. At that time, I got on the Affirmative Action Commission for the City of Madison, uh, was on that ad hoc committee to create the Department of Civil Rights for the City of Madison, so that was a long time ago. Also went through a Wisconsin Women in Government program and eventually ended up working for the Lieutenant Governor and then eventually Governor Doyle. And then, I've, yeah, I, I feel like I'm going on and on about my career. No, but here's the thing is I feel like what you're saying is like there is relevant experience to this oh. work. And and oh, yeah. I think so often in conversations about diversity, in conversations about communities of color in particular, a lot of people show up with an opinion about, oh, you know, 
um, ab about how uh, communities of color can, can, you know, shift the conditions and realities mm -hmm. they're confronted mm -hmm. with. Yeah. Um, and I am often curious, like what qualifies you to, mm. to talk about that? What qualifies yeah. you to talk about what, what students of color need to become better readers in yeah. our school district, right? Um, yeah. It seems to be an area in which expertise is particularly important. Mm -hmm. And yet um, it seems to be an area in which people feel comfortable engaging in casual conversations um, as if they are experts. Do you have to every once in a while kind of subtly remind people uh, that that you do have this incredible breadth of experience and this incredibly relevant background um, and that you're not just speaking on these issues from a place of opinion, but that you, you really have an analysis that's informed by data and expertise? Yeah, um, I have often have to remind myself of that, too, if I'm being honest, because early in my career, I wanted to go into this kind of thing, this a DEI work early in my career, but I actually did not want to be the black woman doing DEI or cultural competency or whatever it was called early on, or not early on, but at that time. And I made an intentional decision to stay in public health and then in public policy and then going back to the university because I did not want to be that person just to um, be that, that black woman doing DEI. I wanted to have a depth of experience before I um, kind of transition to this work, a depth of experience in terms of understanding data, knowing data, knowing how to interpret data, knowing how to ask the right questions to get a full picture and understanding quantitative data and understanding qualitative data and how you actually need them both to get a full picture of what's going on, how to understand policy change, understanding kind of how not only policy change, the, how the system of politics works, and so many of those skills are transferable to the corporate space. But having that depth of knowledge and depth of skills has been so important. And not only was I gaining that depth of knowledge and skills in, grad, in undergrad, grad school, and throughout my career, I've also been on a lot of boards um, and committees during this entire time as well. But it was interesting because, yes, I do have to remind myself of kind of the background that I bring. Um, but also some people are like, you? I'm like, yeah, I've been doing this in some form or fashion my entire career. It may not have been as VP of DEI, but all those key competencies that you need in order to be effective at this work are there. And to be effective at this work and at the level that which, uh, which you do this work. And I think you're a pretty humble person. Mm -hmm. um, and, and don't I don't think you often, you know, mention that you do do this work at a national level. Mm -hmm. And so you, you have these conversations both here locally and also across the country. And, and as a black woman who is from Madison, Wisconsin, um, there are conversations that I have had here um, and had in New York, and they look really, really different. Is it ever, do you ever kind of compare where audience is at in terms of where an audience is at in terms of their ability to be receptive to what you're saying? And I guess my bonus question to that question is, do you ever factor in how your own identity is going to be perceived as you deliver the message? Do you ever think, oh, if I was a white man and I explained this data set to people, they would accept it. Um, 
but because I'm a black woman, people are a black woman. People are going to want me to take care of their feelings. They're going to want me um, to to soften the blow of this reality. And how do you balance those those dynamics of being read differently in different places and factoring in, you know, the way people project expectations onto you as a black woman? Yeah, I love that question about softening the blow. <laughs> it kind of makes me laugh because if anyone knows me. That is not something that comes innate to me. Um, I'm very kind of plain spoken. I don't really sugarcoat things. Um, and that's that's just me. Um, and it's not, what I try to do in this role is to show up as me through and through and through. I can't ask someone to show up as their, their whole self unless I'm willing to do it myself. If I'm showing up inauthentically, that's going to be like, why would you trust me to show up as authentically? If, if you, if I can't show up authentic, right? So for me, it's taken a lot of self-awareness and acceptance of who I am and how I show up in this space. Um, do I know that things will land differently um, coming from a white man than me? Absolutely. Um, and so I ask that white man to say things that I can't say. And that is intentional, strategic. Is it annoying? Absolutely. But is it the reality? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's not even a black man saying the same thing. It's just a man of any race, right? Um, the mm. stuff that plays in, into. And it's, again, I think sometimes people take so much of this stuff personal. That's not personal. That is a system playing out as it's been trained to do, as it's been created to do. So if you want to make systems change, understand the system and play the chessboard as opposed to saying like, oh my God, this is personal. Cause it's not some of the time, some of the time it may be, but most of the time it's the system is doing its thing. Um, one of the quotes that I heard early on in my career is that the status quo was resilient, right? So I know that the status quo is resilient. So what am I going to do to kind of make the status quo, a status quo pause for a second and maybe redirect. And that means knowing that I'm not always the right messenger. If you're just tuning in, if you're just sitting down for lunch, just jumping into your car, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name's Ali Muldrow, and this is a public affair. Happy Tuesday, my friends. We are on the air live with Angela Russell, who is the Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at True Stage in Madison, and the host of the Black Oxygen podcast, which just quick, shameless plug, if you have not checked out Black Oxygen, you know, your tombstone is going to read, you tried, you know, <laughs> like, you, you got to check it out. It's so good. It's such, such loving and beautiful conversations that confront reality um, courageously and, and also with, with such deep respect and reverence for our shared humanity. Angela, it's just like a gift to get to talk to you about this. And I'm sure there are so many people out there who have questions about diversity, equity, and inclusion, about why it's being used politically um, to deny professors raises uh, throughout the university system. If you want to ask Angela Russell a question, the number is 608-256-2001. Our incredible team will patch you through before we we get back into this interview. Just huge shout out to our engineer, John, our incredible producer, Jade, and our beloved Shally Pittman. Um, these, these folks make a public affair possible. 
And um, John is just letting us know that he's got a little a little history with your organization. So our engineer and Angela Russell are connected through past professional overlap. Mm-hmm. Thanks for thanks for ti- chiming in, John. For more than for more than thirty years, John worked for CUNA slash Jusage. Um, I guess it's it's kind of uh, an important thing to acknowledge that True Stage went through this major makeover, right? Mm-hmm. Like this Devil Wears Prada before and <laughs> at True yeah. Stage. Talk a little bit about how diversity, equity, and inclusion helped support that kind of branding shift. You all were once CUNA Mutual Group. Um, you are you are now True Stage. What 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 does that mean in terms of you know? shifting your brand and strengthening the work that you're doing around DEI. Yeah. So um, I'll give a little bit of history, not too much, but CUNA Mutual, there's two organizations in Madison. One is CUNA Mutual, formerly CUNA Mutual. The other is CUNA, two different organizations and people, John, you probably remember this, getting us confused constantly. So CUNA is a credit union national association, is a trade organization for credit unions. CUNA Mutual, a corporation that provides financial products and services for credit unions and their members. So two separate organizations, but we were getting confused all of the time. Still do get confused, if I'm being honest, um, even with this new name. So coming together as true stages, one thing. The other thing is that we have well over 80 products that we provide and all of them had different names. So unifying under one brand helps us create um, a one consistent true stage experience and and then creates this vision and purpose that is aligned and we're all swimming in the same direction. Our CEO, Terrence Williams, talks about um, vertical execution, horizontal thinking. So how do we think of all of us kind of across our organization swimming in this same direction? And part of swimming in the same direction is making sure that we're swimming in the direction that we are providing the best products and services to our consumers. And that means that DEI becomes even more critical to who we are. Oh, I think that, you know, that's a wonderful explanation. I appreciate you just being like, listen, we had the same name as this other organization. (laughs) Inconvenient. And, you know, really, really talking about also kind of the shift in leadership because mm-hmm. your your CEO is newer to the organization, um, and that means you know a, a new direction and a, a new vision for what you all are going to do. Um, do you do you see yourself as kind of uh, a real kind of key player in what the future of that work for True Stage looks like, and how do you think? you know, having new leadership impacts that work? What do you, what do you hope for in terms of the collaborative work of your, your leadership team at True Stage? Yeah, such a pointed question, Ali, but one that I appreciate. <laughs> yeah, I, I love our new CEO. His name is Terrence Williams. I love Terrence. I love his vision around DEI. And he has, he has this groundedness about I don't know, honestly, insurance. It's so interesting. Um, he is the first person I've ever met who knew that he wanted to go in insurance when he was a teenager. And I'm like, that's that's interesting. <laughs> but he did. And he talks about insurance is a promise. And he sees so much kind of potential around 
these types of uh, financial products, whether it's insurance, retirement, annuities, down the line, in helping reduce the racial wealth gap. So that is, for me, exciting. It's super exciting. And as a- I have to admit, I until I heard him speak, I had never thought of insurance in and of itself as a strategy towards equity. Um, yeah. and, and I was really pretty- you know, pretty in awe of his ability to connect the dots between how people invest and the and the kinds of safety nets people have access to. Yeah. With, you know, what what it means to be black in this country, what it means yeah. to be poor in this country, what it what it means to be othered in any way in, in our greater community. Mm-hmm. It was I was just having a coffee chat with him this morning and a, another guy, uh, Dr. Leo Nunnery, who's done He's a historian, but he's also done research on the uh, black black professionals in the insurance industry. So we, Terrence and I were chatting with him and the three of us talked about how much black folks don't regularly talk about wills and trusts and how normative that is in other communities. So if your parent dies without a will and that all goes to probate, why are we not having these conversations and connecting that to generational wealth as well? Well, and the the larger planning that is is indicated in that, right? Like yeah. communities in in more general ways that yeah. have um, greater, you know, end of life planning. Yep. The the crazy thing about that, if you're in Wisconsin right now, you know, the only county in Wisconsin where STDs are going down is La Crosse County, hmm. and folks have talked about the relationship that has to how many people in lacrosse have living wills, like the percentage of the population and what that kind of says about long-term planning um, in the context of that community and safety in the context yeah. of the community as a value. Angela, when you, when you think about kind of what you hope for this work 10 years ago, 10 years from now, I guess you can go, you know, kind of back and forth in time because you've been doing it long enough that you can go 10 years ago, this is where we were. Um, 10 years from now, what do you hope you have accomplished within this work? If you're, if you're thinking about 2033, um, where, where do you hope diversity, equity, and inclusion will be? And what do you hope your leadership will have meant to it? Yeah. So before we kind of go to the future, I do want to go to the past. When I started at True Stage, people in the community told me not to start here, not to come here because they actually, they're like, this organization isn't committed to DNI in a real way. And I'm like, okay, well, if they're not, I won't be there long. That's, that's fine. Um, but let me just try it out. And I have been perpetually surprised. Um, if you would have told me eight years ago that we're, we were having going to have a black CEO, I would have not believed you. Um, so the fact that we have been able to make such a cultural shift not only in our employee base, but in our board of directors to say, yeah, not only is Terrence like hyper qualified, like hyper, like one of the smartest people I've met, um, but to have a black CEO, we're ready. We're ready and need to have Terrence, a black guy as our CEO is huge. Uh, that's massive. Um, 10 years from now, oh God, can, can I tell you the first reaction that, that I had? Cause I was just thinking about 10 years from now, a little bit ago, I still won't be able to retire in 10 years. <laughs> Number 
one. Well, I mean, I think when you when you give your resume, you make yourself sound seventy-two years old. <laughs> you are a very young person with young kids. You know, you are a working mom. Um, yeah, ten years from now, you're be you're 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 gonna have been at this for a long time. You know, but I still will not be retired. I mean. I won't be 56. I won't be 65 in 10 years. Anyway, <laughs> um, 10 years from now, man, I I have so many desires for this work. One of them, of, of course, is around, you know, providing our consumers with what they need at every stage of their life. More consumers, more multicultural consumers. But if I'm being honest, I also know that wealth disparities can go down through employment. So hiring much more, uh, having a multicultural organization that impacts our overarching financial well-being as well. When I think about the stories that I've, I've heard from some of our employees that they never thought that they could do as financially well, and it's because of True Stage, that like warms my heart. So not only for our consumers, but for our workforce, it, it makes it that the impact, the generational impact that it'll have is huge. And so there's a consumer part, there's a workforce. And then in 10 years, we better still be doing solid community work because I think we have a lot of great corporations that provide great connections to our community, but we've got to be uplifting all of us. I I'm being real honest, I want there to be a multicultural middle class in Madison. That doesn't exist. That's what I want. Oh, I love what you want. And I love what you want because I, I feel like you will make that happen. And I think the people who are working against DEI are scared of you, boo. Um, <laughs> they, are, they are worried about who you, who you want in their neighborhood. They are worried about who you want at their school. You are, they're worried about who, who gets to swim in their pool still. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, that, that is not, not controversial. Mm-hmm. Maybe it shouldn't be, but, but it, but it is, it's a controversial thing to say, I want to expand the middle class to be more inclusive, to be more diverse than it has ever been in the United States. And I want to do that in the next decade. Yeah. Um, so I don't think anybody would argue that this work lacks ambition. Um, oh, yeah. If you are just joining us, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Ali Maldro, and I'm your host. This is A Public Affair. Happy Tuesday, everybody. And we are on the air with Angela Russell. If you have questions for her about the work she is doing with diversity, equity, and inclusion at True Stage here in Madison, give us a call at 608-256-2001. We'd love to patch you through. We'd love to hear what you have to say, what you think, what you're wondering about today. Angela, what, what are the questions, you know, most frequently asked about DEI, when you present to people who maybe are, are new to this work, um, what, what are people curious about? What are people questioning? Um, how do people fit themselves into this work if they've never really thought of themselves as, you know, part of, part of the conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion? So those are a lot of questions into one. I'm going to kind of break them out. <laughs> so is one of them uh, how do I talk about DEI from, from someone who wants to be a practitioner or someone who's just not, who, how do I talk about DEI who's not a practitioner, but is kind of curious? 
yeah, somebody says, hey, I don't really know that much about this. Why should why should we be focusing on this right now? Why are we spending time on this at work? I thought I was supposed to be focusing on, you know, my email. Why am I learning about pedagogy? Why am I learning about the history of writing? First of all, I'm never going to start a, a conversation with, hey, what's your pedagogical analysis on DEI? I'm not going to start there. Um <laughs> Okay, so what you're telling me is that is DEI part two. <laughs> so many thoughts are running through my head right now. Honestly, um, the first thing that I do is if I am in an ideal state and if, and if I'm not rushing from place to place, I try to get to know the person right in front of me. So tell me your story. I want to know people's story. And and then I ask about, I often at, um, interact in conversations, not by giving answers, but by asking questions. So why are you curious about DEI? What are your thoughts on DEI? And kind of go, and tell me your story and kind of go from there, as opposed to, this is why it's important. This is why what you're doing is wrong. Blah, 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 blah. No one wants to. That is just going to create um, an energetic force field around people from engaging. And I think one of the challenges around DEI as DEI practitioners, is that we can get real self-righteousy and thinking that we have all the answers, and that's just not a fact. One of the things that I love about this work is how much I can learn all of the time and how the practice of DEI kind of continues to evolve. If you think about the 1970s, again, my, if my kids heard me, they'd be like, the 1900s. But if you think about the work, this type of work in the 1970s, it was all about affirmative action, right? Then it switched to tolerance, which is problematic in so many ways. Then cultural sensitivity, cultural competence, um, D and I, not just D-E-I, D and I, now D-E-I. And now people are adding are thinking of it as Jedi or DEIB, the work is going to continue to evolve. Um, and because the work continues to evolve, that means that your North Star has to be even much more clear all the time. But yeah, I really want to get to know people and I want to understand their why, their why of why are they interested in this work or why it makes them so uncomfortable. Do people tell you why they're so uncomfortable? What what are what are some of the reasons you hear for people really really yeah. struggling with this work? Afraid that they're going to get it wrong. That's pretty much that's the thing that ha that I hear most often. Um, the, also, well, what about me and my family? Um, then that's when I kind of go into again question mode. Um, what else do I hear? Uh, yeah, thinking that it's does that. Does this mean that we're just going to hire less qualified people of color? And I have to, when I hear that, I have to do all of the work to not uh, be overly triggered or show that I'm triggered. Um, yeah, it's a lot of different things. When someone says something like, are we hiring, you know, people of color who are less qualified? Mm -hmm. um, when people say things that are really about people of color being inherently inferior to white people. Um, why is it your job to not be offended, hmm. to not be hurt by that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can be offended, but I also, if I'm trying to bring them along, I know that when I'm really offended, 
I, I have a tendency to cut people off the knees, which is not great or effective. <laughs> so I'm trying to think about, okay, what's going to be effective in this moment? So I go into question mode of why do you think that we would hire people that are not that qualified? How does that impact the organization? Um, and then after I give folks space and time to answer that, I generally go to, you know, hiring people of color just to do that when they're not qualified does a disservice to that person of color and a disservice to the organization. So that's not a that's not a proposition that I'm down with. One of the criticisms I've heard of DEI from communities of color is um, DEI says instead of this person being accountable for their racism, we want to teach them. We want to wrap support around them. We want to enhance their vocabulary. Mm. When when is the behavior um, about somebody needing you to bring them along and meet them where they're at? And when is the behavior inappropriate for for work? When is the behavior unsafe for uh, the communities impacted by it? Yeah, I really love that question. And I'm going to tackle it in a way that maybe isn't a traditional way of thinking about it. Sometimes folks think that to be effective in the work of DEI is about changing hearts and minds. And it's not. <laughs> I mean, if, if that comes as a byproduct of what we're doing, that's great. And I used to think that until about, honestly, three or four years ago. And what changed for me is that I have experienced very close family members who struggle with addiction, right? Like if they are, it's actually up to them to change their behavior in order to deal with the addiction. Same thing with DEI. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I could do with my close family members to say, hey, you need to do this. Hey, you need to. They actually already know what they need to do, but it's on them to get in the right system and space, but also make those decisions to take the first steps to change their behavior and do it over and over and over again. So once I let go of the notion that it is my job to change hearts and minds, that was so freeing. That was so freeing. What we can do is create a system and structure for learning and development to happen. We can create, identify systematic things that are um, leaving people out unnecessarily and work to, to, to address those. But it's literally the daily practice of everybody. And it's our, every, everyone's job to have a daily practice of DEI to make things better. What does a daily practice of DEI look like? When you say daily practice, like I immediately am like thinking about like my skincare routine and like meditation. <laughs> and I'm like, am I doing it? What are what what is that daily practice? Yeah. So we cannot pretend that every one of us um, doesn't have like me bias. I'm a DEI leader in the space. I have bias. So who am I reaching out to on a regular basis to say? Am I tripping? And that's my question to, to people. I'm like, am I tripping? What am I not seeing? What else do I need to know? Um, what What am I reading that's intentionally out of my um, general sphere so I can learn? Um, there are lots of little things that people can be doing to have a daily practice of DEI. It's not all of the things because that's impossible. Um, I also kind of I talked earlier that I, I used to play the flute, um, was, a, was a flute nerd. Um, and the daily practice of being a musician, at least for me, was sometimes just taking one measure at a time and practicing it over and over and over again until I could go on to the full thing. Um, it's that. 
it's just, it's just a practice. Um, I wish I was better at my practice of working out, <laughs> but it's those things that work that you have to build a muscle to get proficient at it. And over time, certain elements become a muscle memory, and then you're going to have to continue to learn something new. So that's what I mean in terms of a daily practice. Angela Russell, in the words of Beyonce, before I let you go. Oh my God! I know, we've got like two minutes left. And I want to talk to you about allies in this work. I want to talk to you about the roles of people who navigate different identities and have greater privilege to support you in doing this work along the way. What do you need from from those folks? Mm. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I'm thinking. Um, You know... I feel like I'm continuing to learn more and more about allyship because what I will say is that sometimes being an ally is hard, Um, but don't let fear get in the way. I think that allies need to know that you're going to mess, you're going to mess up. It's just, it's just part of the process. Like if I'm playing a flute, I'm going to mess up while I'm practicing, but don't let the fear of messing up get in the way of doing the work that it needs that needs to be done to be an effective ally. Um, speaking with, but not speaking over. Um, considering what don't I know? Oof, the reason I just did oof on that one is that I think that sometimes in Madison, I think that we feel like we read all the books so we know all the things. So that, that makes me an effective ally. Uh, that's not real. <laughs> If I'm being, if I'm being honest, that's just not, that's just not real. Like I can read all the James Baldwin that I want, but does that mean I know the experience of being a black gay man in America? No. So why am I going to pretend to? So the pretend stuff needs to stop. The humility needs to increase and just really understanding that we're all in this together. Mm. Angela, I think that one of the things I love about talking with you is that no matter how critical you are, you're, you remain hopeful that we can make the world a better place. And I think so many of us need that these days. And that's why getting to interview a leader like you in our community is such a gift and an honor. Folks, if you're listening, we are WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is A Public Affair. Thank you so much, Angela Russell, for joining us today. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never.